1: now here is ellie weiss from the wild eyes foundation
2: good morning and welcome to our wild world We're all very aware of the multitude of changes and challenges our wildlife and wild places are facing right now and into the near and far future. From climate change to political change, huge shifts are afoot, challenging every level of our systems. From increased encounters between humans and wildlife, particularly with large carnivores, occurring more and more frequently in urban areas, all the way to suburban, exurban, and rural landscapes, to the political shifts affecting our national parks, federal and state public lands, and the systems in place to protect and conserve both our biodiversity and our species, that as we build more outside core density zones, the boundaries between us and them are getting fuzzier and fuzzier, as our search to reconnect with nature, wilderness, and wildlife, along with our desire to recreate everywhere, grows ever wider in scope. We are facing very real threats to the fundamental systems in place for wilderness and wildlife legal protections under the National Park System, the Wilderness Act, the Endangered Species Act, and our federal and state public lands. This requires that we do understand the rules, laws, and protections in place and that each of us do our part toward ensuring these protections and systems and laws stay in effect. And today, to help us navigate through this tangled web, as it affects one particular species, is my guest, Carter Niemeyer, wolf biologist, retired U.S. fish and wildlife biologist, author, and and head of the U.S., or retired, or still, I guess we're going to find out, of the Wolf Reintroduction Program. Welcome, Carter.
3: Good morning. Happy to be here.
2: Good morning. It's great to have you back again. And I would just like at this moment to remind our listeners to tune in to the previous episode with Carter, which was a couple of years ago now, so a lot has changed, and wolves are coming back. We've had headlines lately that they're coming back to Colorado, and in Colorado they're protected. In California they're protected, but what we're going to talk about today is in those places where they don't have quite the protections. So, um, Carter, let's start with... A little brief history about you and um, how that relates to U.S. Fish and Wildlife and the Wolf Reintroduction Program and then we'll start catching up on today.
3: Well I have a long story I guess uh, because I'm uh, an Iowa native and ended up out west working with wolves of all things. So my uh, brief history is that I did grow up in the Midwest in uh, rural agricultural area Worked as a uh, farm laborer as I was a kid, baling hay, pitching manure, things like that, and uh, grew up in an environment where I liked to uh, hunt, fish, and trap like most kids my age at that time. Um, The hunting and trapping, I guess, brought me close to nature, which made me decide that I wanted to be a wildlife biologist, so... um, After I got out of high school, growing up in the town of Garner, Iowa, I went on to uh, Iowa State University and got a um, bachelor's and master's degree uh, in wildlife biology. And immediately immediately upon graduation, I had an opportunity to uh, work in the state of Montana, which I hardly knew where it was on a map, believe it or not. So I... um, Left the Midwest on an Amtrak train and went to Montana to uh, work on uh, helping reduce a rabies threat in northeast Montana by the town and by the town of Plentywood. Um, I had that uh, expertise from my graduate work in Iowa State, where I worked on a uh, serological study of rabies in uh, North Iowa mammals, and then. Uh, My journey was uh, rapid because um, out of graduate school, uh, sometimes you just can't find a permanent job. So I went from Plentywood uh, the following year to Miles City where I did some uh, research on bobcats, put radio collars on them. Uh, that, That was with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service and then When that job terminated, I was offered a job to trap and relocate golden eagles that were preying on livestock in southwest Montana by the town of Dillon. Uh, Then I uh, got a battlefield promotion, I guess you'd call it, with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, where I moved on to Helena, Montana, uh, and got a job with uh, Wildlife Services, which uh, at that time was called Animal Damage Control, which took me into the a uh, vast field of predator control. And we're going to talk
2: a little bit more about that later and what that means. You brought up, sorry to jump in here, you brought up hunter-trapper and you know in the days of today of animal rights, animal welfare, animal, we love animals activism, hunter-trapper um lights up flags all over to people. So, you have just given us a really important message of what hunting trapping means for science. How do we catch these animals so that we can do, um, understand and and perform research and release them back into the wild. But that also brings up uh, some old days, which we covered very well um, on our last episode and that you wrote about in Wolfer. So, Could we just segue a little bit into that little bit of your history um, with Wildlife Services and Wolfer and um, the United States program to basically eradicate wolves from our landscape? And um, that would bring us up to currently and a huge shift in your mindset and change of heart to your most recent book, Wolfland, which we'll get into a little later in the program. So... um, could you give us a little perspective of Wildlife Services at that time and our view on wolves?
3: Oh, well, when I went to work for Wildlife Services in the mid-1970s, um, they're an agency that uh, basically, in the, at least in the western United States, are involved in uh, dealing with livestock damage by predators, uh, including you know, from grizzly bears, uh, wolves, coyotes, foxes, uh, pretty much the whole spectrum. Um, it's a modern uh, program compared to the past programs, uh, and so I'm going to kind of jump back and then jump forward again. Uh, Wildlife Services, uh, or the old Animal Damage Control Program, um, was a government agency. It was under the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, and it's been under the U.S. Department of Agriculture, too. Um, but Their program was involved uh, early on in the, um, you call it the eradication elimination of wolves and the reduction of many other predator species uh, that were in competition with um, settlers, you know, moving from east to west and from south to north, uh, bringing sheep and cattle into the western regions of uh, the United States during settlement times. Pretty simply, saying that the predators were competition. They, they, uh, at the time of settlement, they were eating deer and elk and antelope and other, um, you know, natural prey species, uh, including bison. And a lot of those animals were eliminated through uh, commercial hunting, human encroachment. In the case of wolves, they seem to be the principal target and because of their social structure were most vulnerable so by the 1930s uh, wolves were pretty much eliminated from the lower 48 states with the exception of uh, a few hundred up in Minnesota um, the other predators, uh, lions, bears, such, uh, I don't think were uh, as heavily targeted as, as the uh, determined uh, eradication program toward wolves. Then, um, of course, the coyote kind of filled that niche when wolves left. And coyotes, uh, having smaller territories and uh, being even more able to generally live with humans, uh, were a determined um competitor that, uh, as we killed them with poison traps and other things, uh, actually coyote numbers grew and spread, and they pretty much took over the lower 48 states and replaced the wolf.
2: So this is sort of a place where we could get into problem animal control management, our management systems that we have in today, that when we go about manipulating a landscape and eradicating that which competes for what we want heaven forbid it wants to eat what we eat and it's a carnivore then we have a way of going about eradicating them but as we do that as you just said something else in nature will come and fill that niche so as we eradicated wolves coyotes came up as we eradicate coyotes Foxes come up, so there 's a balance here in predator prey, so you 've already said, as we encroach wildlife left either due to our presence or that we killed it out, but we still went around eradicating that which was able to live off of our livestock so let 's talk a little bit about the biology and the the function of ecosystems if if you can help us understand why some of this management killing for conservation in extirpating or removing, eliminating a species from a landscape just doesn't seem to work.
0: Well,
3: first we have to recognize that all species have a a purpose in life. Um, They all fill a particular niche. There's people out there who would say, well, you know, we really don't need them. Uh, We can fill that niche. But really, um, a healthy ecosystem... uh, is composed of all the, the animals that were here since the uh, beginning of time and, and evolved with time to uh, fulfill a role. Wolves, for example, you know, they're, they're one of the top predators that uh, prey on and uh, call and keep healthy ungulate species uh, like deer and elk, for instance. Since we don't have a lot of time, the the point being is that uh, you have these trophic cascades where you have large predators at the top and uh, prey species below. And um, all of these interactions of these predators and their prey um, influence um, the vegetation, for example. Um, I'm not going to go into the big story in Yellowstone, but uh, there is an example where uh, predators control prey and, and the prey could be affecting the vegetation, which can affect the water. And of course, all there's all these other species that, that live in these same areas. Um, and so they all interact and they're all affected by how we treat one component of that environment. Personally, I just don't think uh, humans should necessarily fulfill all the roles that uh, all these other species uh, are meant to do?
2: Well, I don't think we can. Um, I don't think we want to as humans. We don't want to go out there and be landscape architects for a functional system, as we can tell through our recent history um, and the effects that we've had on the planet over the past 50 years. So just quickly, the Yellowstone uh, study that Carter referred to, you can find that up through William Ripple and Robert Besta, and a study of uh, riparian habitats through five national parks, and the one key thing they ended up finding out as a result of loss of vegetation and uh, loss of riparian uh, functionality was the removal of wolves. So, that is a perfect segue to lead us into the wolf reintroduction program. Carter, you because of your experience in the field and trapping wolves previously for wildlife services had uh, the background and the necessarily necessary expertise and skill set to help us bring them back. Or actually, you know, we need to take a little bit of a break. So um, let's take a break now, and then we're going to come back and talk about that, uh, uh, the wolf reintroduction program then and now so be sure to check us out on facebook and uh, our wild world wild eyes foundation and follow carter niemeyer on facebook as well he has a lot of information that he shares out there that is really important that we stay up on so stick with us
0: and we'll be right back Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7.
1: Wildlife. No wild, no life. Big, scary, beautiful. Predators are in danger. Without them, our rivers dry up. Our forests don't grow. Our communities go hungry. Our biodiversity crumbles. W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G
0: Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America.
1: You're listening to L.A. Weiss and Our Wild World.
2: Welcome back. This is Ellie Weiss, our wild world, and my guest Carter Niemeyer. So, right before the break, we were give- given a brief history of Carter's background and uh, getting into wolves and why carnivores are necessary in our landscapes and why we as humans don't want them. So, um, as we left off before the break, we were getting right back into why wolves were removed from the landscape and now why they're being put back. And Carter, you have some comments that you've said that when we talk that wolves, um, they're resilient, they will come back, and that wildlands, you know, why are we going to kill them off and spend all this expense if we're just going to bring them back? So give us a little historical perspective and what's going on.
3: Well, as I uh, talked earlier about um, moving from Iowa to the uh, western states, uh, and With my background as a hunter and a trapper, it, it all become invaluable uh, experience for me because um, about the mid-1980s, gray wolves were coming out of Canada and uh, recolonizing uh, along the Canada-U.S. border up in the area of Glacier National Park. Um, those wolves... We're starting to try and reestablish up in the northern tier areas of northwest Montana. And actually, um, our first livestock-wolf interaction happened up near Browning, Montana, on the Blackfoot Indian Reservation. Um, So along the lines, we had natural recolonization of wolves occurring in the mid-1980s. At the same time, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service was talking about uh, actually reintroducing wolves uh, to put them back into some of their old uh, former range where they historically lived in uh, northwestern United States. Um, An environmental impact statement was completed in 1994 by the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service to look at wolf reintroduction and actually... um, It happened in 1995 and 1996. Um, I happened to be one of the team members during that time. uh, When we actually went to uh, Alberta, Canada the first year and caught wolves and then went to Fort St. John, British Columbia, Canada uh, in 1996, brought 66 gray wolves down during those two years, putting 35 of those wolves in Idaho and 31 in Yellowstone National Park. And uh, from that recovery and reintroduction effort, today we have roughly uh, 2,000 gray wolves, in uh, mostly in Idaho, Wyoming, and Montana.
2: So of those wolves, first question, of the original ones that, were, that you trapped and moved, are any still alive?
3: Uh, to the best of my knowledge, all of the original founding wolves uh, have died.
2: But their offspring carry on,
0: yes?
3: Yes, we have, uh, let's say, roughly 2,000 wolves on the ground in Idaho, Wyoming, Montana, uh, with a few um, recolonizing uh, Washington and Oregon.
2: So when you say recolonizing, this is dispersals from those original uh, reintroduced wolves, correct?
3: Yes, this is all uh, dispersal by the wolves on their own. Um, you'll hear accusations made that uh, that the government is putting wolves here and putting wolves there. Uh, that's really not true. We did a little bit of a relocation of problem wolves in uh, Montana, Idaho, and Wyoming, uh, but discontinued that about 2002. So ever since that time, the wolves are on their own.
2: So sort of like... Uh, mountain lion conspiracy theories, they are not being reintroduced into places or being moved under the cover of darkness, so to speak. So, um, the places that you mentioned that the wolves are doing well, that their resilience has served them well, many of those places, they are not protected. Correct?
3: Uh, Currently, the states of uh, Montana and Idaho allow um recreational or sport trapping and hunting of gray wolves um currently they're uh they were delisted in wyoming and they had a hunting season for a short time uh, but the wolves now are relisted and protected in wyoming
2: so that's Uh, on the state level that's on the
3: state level
2: and are they still protected on, on the federal level or has that been relegated to state control
3: Across the board, Wyoming—they're federally protected Uh, again—and then briefly in the states of Washington and Oregon, uh, wolves were delisted on in the eastern, roughly the eastern third of Washington, the eastern third of Oregon, and are still federally protected in the western two-thirds of Washington and the western two-thirds of Oregon. And
2: they're um, state-protected in California and state-protected in Colorado. So
3: yes, and then I would say federally protected,
2: too. Okay, so this gets confusing. Um, it's like <laughs> elephants and lions under the Endangered Species Act. I mean, Appendix 1, Appendix 2, CITES, all of this, The uh, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife. It gets convoluted and confusing. So this goes back to why did we spend a lot of money to reintroduce them, And get them back in because we have the research and the experience and the the ground data to show that wolves are necessary in our ecosystems and that they trim back and keep uh, ungulate species and herds in check and healthy. Help us understand a little why this is so convoluted where um, it gets confusing and this I guess brings in federal public lands state public lands, we won't get into the politics of that right now, and that if wolves can't live in wilderness, where will they live? And if we're going to keep removing them and put quotas on, then what's the point of reintroduction?
3: Well, I'll try and keep it simple.
2: Well, you don't have to keep it too simple, because (laughs) this is complex. And, you know, I have you to help us understand it.
3: Uh, Just so people aren't totally confused. Um, you know, wolves were listed under the Protection of Endangered Species Act uh, about 1973. And uh, like I say, they're, they're native species that once lived in the lower 48 states, as far down as Mexico City. Um, And this wasn't some harebrained idea by Carter Niemeyer and a group of biologists that thought it was a great idea to reintroduce wolves. This was thought through and it was congressionally directed to do. So the decisions were made at the congressional level to provide an EIS to look at uh, all of the uh, anticipated pros and cons of reintroducing wolves and and the decision was made and the final draft was completed in 1994. So, uh, that was the decision to reinstate wolves in a portion of their former range. Uh, So, they were put in a smaller region of Idaho and Montana where uh, the wolves would encounter species like deer and elk that they uh, normally prey on, uh, where the number of humans would be low and the uh, number of livestock would be low. Although they were put in the central Idaho wilderness and put in Yellowstone National Park as the, uh, you know, the seed uh, sites. And then... uh, as the wolves moved out of those areas of low livestock and high wild ungulate prey numbers, this is where herein lies the problem because as they moved out of those core areas, they do move into higher livestock production areas and uh, human habitation where problems increased
2: it's understood that wolves can live with us and they seem to be doing it pretty well. Um, But it brings us to the problem that we don't want to live with wolves. So in both your, both your books, Wolfer the first one, and in your second book that was recently released, Wolfland. Both are excellent reads and a lot of stories uh, that Carter, personal stories of the reintroduction, the original trapping, trappings in, uh, in Canada and uh, the introduction into the United States. But um, this brings us to a lot of the work that you're doing now since the reintroduction, which is working as a liaison between ranchers and the public and wolves you're sort of a voice for wolves and you attend a lot of meetings and tell us what some of that work involves in getting us to coexist with wolves and how we manage the the conflicts
3: well well, the reason I wrote the books is to share a lot of my experience Um, It's it's all the truth and some of the truth is unbelievable at times, but um, you have to recognize that the greater national public in the United States like wolves and want wolves, and uh, that was a lot of the thrust. You know, the the national uh, population supported wolf reintroduction. So um, my books reflect... The conflict between I guess folks who want wolves and and those who don't. and the obvious problem is that um, wolves require a lot of open space. they need uh, our public lands especially where they can find you know uh, solace, solace and peace and uh, uh, isolation from humans. but at the same time, uh, this is a rural America out there in many respects. So there's a lot of livestock and people who live on the land, and of course they live closer to the wolves than the folks say in the city who like and support wolf recovery. Good point. So anyway, this is this is a situation I got in, and and. Uh, Because of my close working experience uh, with wolf advocates and also working with uh, ranchers and livestock producers who sometimes have conflicts and losses to wolves, um, I've had to become a conflict resolution specialist, not by choice, but by necessity. So anyway, that's... um, Kind of leads up to what I'm doing nowadays after I'm retired is that I do spend an awful lot of time being a a mentor, advisor, trainer, instructor, you might say, uh, sharing my experience with others to see if we don't have to encounter the same bumps in the road that we did uh, 20 years ago.
2: And personally, I'm very thankful because we, today, with a lot of the younger generations coming up, and getting involved in uh, wildlife rehabilitation, um, biology, the natural sciences, uh, species understanding, all the research that's going on that's given us the material that we and data to understand the interconnectedness of carnivores, prey, ecosystems, the trophic cascades that you mentioned earlier. We need mentors. We need teachers who have this wealth of experience under their belts to help guide and so to speak, not keep reinventing the wheel. So um, this brings us to some current goings on right now. The uh, issues of federal public lands, which our tax dollars help support, which is a lot of wilderness that you talked about where wolves are reintroduced. The point is to keep them away from people, but wolves are resilient, they're going to move. We don't have them on leashes. We have collars on them to understand where they're going. But the point is, is to let them come back and um, their natural resiliency to help improve our ecosystems. So there's some issues going on right now um, politically and with this current election, without devolving too much into politics, um, to remove... uh, Oh, I'm not exactly sure how to state it, so this is where I need your help. Federal lands being sold off to state interests and the effects that will have not only on public dollars but wolves and public lands from federal protections to state use and i think where we're headed is the things that can go awry when a state when public lands go down to state control and the possibility of them being sold off for private, uh, private vested interests maybe I should put it that way
3: well um, I'll try and keep my personal bias out of this but but I am biased absolutely Um, I believe our public lands are invaluable uh, precious treasures for those of us living now and and for all the generations coming up in the United States Um, I personally think we can't have enough public land I wish we had more um, Public land is so important, again, for so many species of wildlife to uh, escape humans. Uh, and when I say we need more public lands, it's because uh, wildlife need corridors. They need connectivity uh, where they can get from one place to another and where populations can, uh, you know, find each other and mingle and where you get the, the genetic diversity. So, um the problem I see is that with state ownership, there's there's so many people who I think see this as, as profiteering more so than anything. The uh, the transfer, I guess you want to call it, selling off, transferring the, the public lands to the states, I can just see uh, opens it up to so much more exploitation, uh, whether it's grazing, timber cutting, mining, um, pipeline corridors and so forth and I I think there's this false impression too that people are going to be better off having uh, all this state land Uh, but I see it uh, it's going to be eventually more restrictive because state lands right now livestock grazing costs more to graze on state land than it does on federal public lands. Um, I also see that um, you know if you see private land nowadays or so often there's a no trespassing sign hanging on the fence. Uh, with public lands, you don't have people locked out except those who decide they want to uh, ride in a pickup truck or on an ATV and, and don't want to walk. But public lands provide us this huge freedom as people uh, to whether it's hunting, fishing, hiking, biking, uh, there's just a lot of things we can do that I don't think you're going to get to continue to do under state management.
2: So this is is a really great point. We need to step away for a quick break, and we're going to pick this up again after the break. So stick with us because there's a lot of information yet to come. We'll be right back.
0: Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7.
1: Wildlife. No wild, no life. Big, scary, beautiful. Predators are in danger. Without them, our rivers dry up. Our forests don't grow. Our communities go hungry. Our biodiversity crumbles. W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G
0: Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America.
1: You're listening to L.A. Weiss and Our Wild World. We want to hear from you. Now, back to our wild world.
2: And welcome back. This is Ellie Weiss, our wild world, and my guest, Carter Niemeyer. And we are talking about wolf reintroduction and the uh, concept of federal public lands, private public lands, state, I guess that's an oxymoron, state public lands and private lands and the effects this has on wolves and carnivores and livestock. So, um, Carter give us a quick rundown of the cost basis, the cost of controlling wolves versus um, private and public lands and the wolf reintroduction and and who would bear these costs in view of federal versus state public lands and then private lands? Well
3: in the event of a a problem with wolves killing livestock for instance of course uh, it can happen on private or public land Um, the costs right now are incurred mostly by the taxpayers of the United States. In many states, uh, wildlife services are under the U.S. Department of Agriculture uh, will do the contract work of controlling predators for the states. Uh, in states like state of Washington, for instance, uh, the state themselves are uh, doing the control. But it can be very, very costly because much of the response anymore is uh, simply sending up a fixed-wing uh, aircraft uh, or sending out a helicopter and you're, you know you're paying six or eight hundred dollars an hour to pay for many of these aircraft uh, like helicopters um,
2: and we're with- not we're talking about wolves that aren't necessarily collared so you have to find them in order to either relocate them or remove them.
3: Yes, in some cases, uh, wolf packs have been radio collared, uh, which makes uh, locating them easier. Uh, In other cases where you have a pack that has no collars, it's like looking for the needle in the haystack sometimes. I guess my point is um, that through my experience working in predator control for uh, three decades at least, Uh, They were always reactive, and I'm trying to promote being proactive, and it gets me in trouble because then you start talking about words like coexistence, uh, non-lethal, things of that measure, but I think that's where we have to get to as quick as possible is we got to be more proactive. Well, it means we're, we, we're trying to be smarter about uh, recognizing the fact that wolves are here to stay, that uh, they're socially and legally protected, and um, they're living on a lot of private and public lands. Um, so they've got to be tolerated. Being prepared is what kind of like uh, what I call proactive. It just means that instead of Putting your livestock out there and um, shutting your eyes and closing your ears and ignoring the possibilities that there's going to be conflict, uh, which usually puts us in this reactive stage is uh, predator kills livestock, uh, then we come in at great expense to remove the predators, uh, only to do this year after year after year. That's uh, what I... Uh, reflect in my books is that predator control is short-term, we need to look at long-term solutions, which means we, uh, whether it's government agencies, livestock producers, wolf advocates need to collaborate and look at ways that everybody can do business, but we don't have to constantly be dealing with dead livestock and dead predators. And, and just
2: to um, articulate, um, there is a verification process when a, a rancher loses an animal to a wolf. That is correct.
3: That's the way it should work, and um, that's part of the uh, issues that I lecture on a lot, is that um, it's important that we make sure that these verifications are being conducted professionally and that we know what we're doing before we react.
2: So it's kind of a crime scene detection, CSI, wolf.
3: Absolutely. It's essential that these investigations be uh, comparable to a human homicide. We need to go out and make sure that what we're reacting to is definitely a predator problem and not uh, uh, some livestock that have died from from other causes, which are many.
2: Can you give us a little uh, anecdote or a story of... Uh, one of these verification processes that you participated in where it was oh absolutely had to be a wolf and you found out it was something else?
3: Yes I I have hundreds of those stories but I'll probably tell you the one that um, uh, that I always think about mostly because this is a true story um, it's when a livestock producer called me years ago up Montana to come and look at a horse uh, and actually wolves were feeding on the horse, except through the verification process, what I look for is hemorrhage, where you actually see that this animal was a living, breathing animal. It had, a, had blood pressure, you know, the heart was beating. Um, I didn't see any evidence of bruising and trauma like the horse had been alive. Um, so I ruled that it was not a wolf kill, uh, that the horse had died of something else, which proved to be true, but uh, in the end, the producer and another neighbor said, we did this to test you, Carter. We thought, let's just see if we can fool him. So this is why uh, I learned early on in my career that you've got to be honest, you've got to be knowledgeable, and you've got to be professional about these verifications because you never know if people out there actually do know what happened and if you uh, try to make a verification in their behalf and be dishonest about it, it might come back and get you in the end. It just makes me more cautious and more professional when I look at things like this.
2: Well, it's it's great to have such keen experience. It would be um, an amazing experience to just be able to be with you sometime and see this. You were talking about research and um, liaising and a lot of the lectures and the workshops that you do so recently here in Colorado I think I sent you the link um, there's a project coming up it doesn't deal with wolves specifically but there's a three year project coming up where our state department of wildlife and uh, parks and wildlife are going to start killing uh, mountain lions and bears at the tune of I think 10 mountain lions a year and 5 or 10 bears a year to assess deer herds, we're, we're having, I, I think it's mule deer uh, reduction, and they're going to go about removing these carnivores to see if it has an impact. What is faulty with that thinking, if, if there is something faulty, whether it's Colorado or another state, to emplace a carnivore killing program without necessarily first studying the health of the herd that you're trying to improve?
3: Well, I guess the obvious uh, answer is that uh, there could be a lot of bears and mountain lions killed unnecessarily. And um, the other question I guess I would have is, uh, so you determine that the deer are dying from uh, bear and lion predation. Um, What does that mean? Do we get into this annual removal Uh, bears and mountain lions to keep or sustain a certain number of deer, which mostly we're maintaining uh, probably for recreational hunting. There there are, there's a lot of studies that have been done uh, doing predator removals uh, to see the effects on uh, their ungulate prey numbers and uh, so many of the studies I've read is, ultimately, that it is not predation that is the principal issue, um, it, it's, it's habitat issues. And there are so many situations today that affect habitat. I mean, include, uh, uh, you can call it this, climate change. Um, you can, if you have droughts, for instance, drought can affect the vegetation and forage. Uh, which affects the, the uh, say in this example, the mule deer herds.
2: It's everything we've talked about so far, that in order to understand um, population explosions and population, what's the opposite, die-offs, we need to look at the entire ecosystem as a whole, not just target one uh, species, which happens to be a carnivore, which often tends to um, benefit certain investments, I'll put it that way. I think this leads into is some of the work you're doing now and the research that you did at uh, Washington State University and how you're using that to move forward in creating our wildlife management plans moving forward.
3: Yeah, the last three years I've uh, contracted with WSU out of uh, Pullman, Washington um, to support four graduate students who are, are looking at uh, all kinds of questions out there, again, uh, but we're kind of focusing on the uh, the interaction and relationship of wolves with livestock, and I think and I hope that some of the answers we get or they get is uh, going to help us be uh, back to my term proactive uh, in seeing actually you know, what is going on out there um, and looking at kill rates by wolves, you know, what are they killing? How often are they killing them? And uh, is um, the principal prey of wolves out there wild ungulates like deer, elk, and moose? And uh, how often do these wolf packs prey on livestock? Um, and so part of my assistance is putting radio collars on some of these packs to help the students uh Follow these wolf packs and look at their interactions with livestock. So, we've got radio collars on wolves, we've got radio collars on livestock, uh, including mortality, ear tags on calves. Um, I think this kind of research is really what's needed so we get a better picture of just what's going on out there, understand it better, and uh, maybe eventually it will allow livestock and wolves to live closer together we just have to do some manipulations to try to keep them apart or create or invent some barriers to uh, discourage wolves from killing stock when they do.
2: And then also um, we when we were talking earlier to be proactive wouldn't it also include getting a better handle on uh, the the prey statistics, the elk statistics the population statistics and what's affecting as you were saying earlier uh the environmental and habitat issues that are affecting elk moose deer and um the balances that are going on and how they vary from place to place where wolves range
3: yeah and it's really interesting uh i always hear the concern is we have to control wolves you know to protect the ungulates from too many being killed by wolves and really, you know, it's a product of, um, when there's a high ungulate population, you're gonna have high wolf numbers. Um, so in in many respects, the prey control the predator, the predator doesn't control the prey. Uh, and that's what we're seeing in areas where there's an abundance of deer and elk and moose prey. Uh, wolves are thriving in those places. And if you really take it upon yourself, To look at, uh, say, the elk populations in Idaho, Wyoming, and Montana right now, they're thriving. Um, You know, you you hear about, well, don't buy any more hunting tags because the wolves have killed all the elk. Uh, If you look at the state fish and game figures, elk numbers are thriving. They're not diminishing except in some very small locations where... It's really a habitat issue, probably fire suppression, Uh, and we have firefighters out today trying to put the fires out instead of letting some of this country burn and create better forage.
2: So it really is a process of understanding how these interconnected systems work and that we do need to include the human aspect that when we are looking at these ungulate populations, we are looking at them for our desire to hunt, and either for trophy or for sustenance, um, the numbers that are out there. So typically, is is that taken into consideration, how many tags, um, licenses are put out there when we're looking at these total numbers versus what wolf offtake is? Do we include us in this picture?
3: Yes, and that's a whole other topic we won't get into probably today.
2: <laughs> okay, then we might just have to follow up because there is so much that we didn't really get to get into today. So it would be fun to uh, continue this conversation, and I'll talk to you a bit more about that. And um, but unfortunately, we're we're almost out of time. Are there is there a last? bit of takeaway that you would like our listeners um any upcoming workshops and uh, resources that we can turn our audience to to learn more
3: well i believe uh follow the news i'm not sure it's it's uh uh, in concrete yet but i believe we're going to have like um, a a conference uh carnivore conference emphasis on wolves uh, perhaps in denver about in mid-february that i'm hoping the public can uh Come and listen and participate and listen to some scientists um, just present, again, some of the very basic knowledge we have about wolves and their ecology and uh, what that impact could be, you know, for uh, people, livestock and uh, wild ungulate populations
2: for those of us who love them and those of us who don't particularly want them around, then I would say definitely uh, tune into Carter's Facebook page. Keep up on the news. As Carter said, there is a lot going on. And as we said, wolves are coming to Colorado. They may already be where you are. So there are a lot of things we can do, as we just discussed, to be proactive and coexist and find non-lethal ways to live with wolves and other carnivores. And unfortunately, we are out of time today. Thank you so much, Carter.
3: Thank you very much. I'm I'm happy to visit with you and talk to you about all these issues. Same,
2: same here, and I would love to have you back and talk about some more of this. That's it for today, Our Wild World. This is Ellie Weiss, my guest, Carter Niemeyer. Niemeyer. And if you're where wolves are, I hope you get to see one.